You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. For a lot of people in this country, much of the past week was spent learning in horror about Canada's past, not distant past either. A heartbreaking discovery on the grounds of a former residential school in Kamloops, B.C. Emotions continue to run high in British Columbia and right across the country. Days after a grave holding the remains of 215 Indigenous children was discovered on the grounds of an old residential school in Kamloops. Remains of more than 200 Indigenous children were found last week. Some were as young as three. Residential schools are not some long-gone part of history. The last one in Canada closed while I was in high school. Not that long ago. Canadians had previously been told about the evils of these schools. Perhaps some of them learned that the schools were designed to tear Indigenous children away from their family and community. Hopefully they also learned that those kids were often subject to abuse. As bad as any of those stories were, though, 215 dead children in an unmarked grave is a new level of horror especially knowing there are probably more of those graves out there. So as the country wrestled with the term genocide, we waited to see what kind of answer, what kind of reckoning would come from the two entities most responsible for this. That would be the Canadian government and the Catholic Church. And this is what we got from them. The residential school system was only one piece of a larger colonial policy designed to erase language and culture to assimilate Indigenous communities so that they no longer existed as distinct peoples. We recognize that and we are committed to addressing that. Francis said he was pained to learn of the Kamloops discovery and urged Canadian political and Catholic leaders to, quote, cooperate with determination. But he did not offer an apology on behalf of the church or indicate one was being considered. Canadians who had been shocked into a reckoning last week reacted with anger at these bland statements that came with basically no promise of real action. But for Indigenous Canadians who have watched the path to truth and reconciliation take shape under this government, there was not much surprise. So if a government won't own its nation's murderous past and a church won't own its evil, It's fair to ask, what's next? And we got a small answer to that on Sunday. Uh, Using ropes, demonstrators hooked onto the metal statue and pulled it over. Egerton Ryerson was one of the architects of Canada's residential school system. It cannot end with statues, though. It can't end with reports or recommendations or a little more funding for a good organization. At some point, a government that has made an awful lot of political noise about the need to do better by Canada's Indigenous peoples should have to actually do something. So, where does Canada's journey towards real truth and actual reconciliation begin? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Eva Jewell is an associate fellow at the Yellowhead Institute, a First Nation-led research centre, which is based in the Faculty of Arts at a Toronto school that has, for a long time at least, been known as Ryerson University. She is Anishinaabekwe from Deshken Zeeping, Chippewas of the Thames First Nation. Hey, Eva. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time for us. Um, we waited a week to do this episode just so 
that when we spoke to an indigenous person, we wouldn't be making them revisit the trauma that just felt so raw last week um, for peoples around the country. So uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. I guess I want to start with uh, the Yellowhead Institute being based in what has long been known as Ryerson University. And I want to start with what happened on Sunday. And tonight on the Ryerson University campus, the statue of Egerton Ryerson, the school's namesake, has been knocked over. Ryerson was one of the architects of Canada's residential school system. Many students and staff at the university, along with several other groups, have been calling for the removal of the statue for years. So have you seen the video of the statue of Egerton Ryerson being pulled down? Yes, I have. Uh, I wasn't there at the site at the time that it was pulled down. I was there a bit before it was pulled down at the sit-in, but I have seen that the statue has been pulled down. And how did it make you feel? It was an amazing moment. And I personally, I I think back on the times when I had first started at Ryerson, knowing that uh, the school was named after a person who had put into motion policies that directly impacted my family, me and my family. I am the granddaughter of residential school survivors on both sides of my family. And in fact, my great-great-grandparents were the first graduates of Mount Elgin Indian Industrial School, which was one of the first model schools for residential schools in the country in Southern Ontario. And that school was actually on my First Nation and I grew up on the what was the former grounds of that school. So knowing, of course, that this was in my history, that I come from people who survived these schools and were impacted by them, I don't speak my language as a result of Ryerson's policies. So when I first started Ryerson uh, at, at Ryerson University, and we are calling it X University now. Last month, Ryerson University's First Nation-led research centre, the Yellowhead Institute, issued an open letter announcing their students and faculty would refer to the school as X University. Now, they would like to see the name and the statue of Egerton Ryerson removed, as he is considered one of the main architects of Canada's residential school system. And the Prime I would Minister walk past that statue after class, and I teach classes uh, on Indigenous perspectives on Canada, and I would teach the impacts of these residential schools, and then walk back to my office past that statue. And I just was in amazement that I had made it to uh, teaching these students, these Canadian students, about his policies and the impacts of them, and yet still walk by a a statue that commemorates him. And so it was um, a very, very difficult legacy to reckon with, and I was extremely uncomfortable with the statue there. So I was jubilant to see that it had been pulled down on Sunday. I am actually uh, an alumnus of the school that may be formerly known as Ryerson, and I remember as part of journalism school walking past that statue on my way to a first-year Canadian history class uh, in which I learned nothing about residential schools at all. Does that surprise you? Not really, actually. Um, Ryerson University, ex-university, it wasn't until I would say in the last five years that the university has made a, an effort to hire more Indigenous faculty and to push for curriculum that tells the truth of what happened uh, to Indigenous peoples and more broadly to 
any community that has been dehumanized and marginalized. So lots of action taking place for, uh, you know, education to ensure that there's curriculum about um, the foundations of anti-Black racism in this country, the foundations of anti-Indigenous racism in this country. And so all of this taking place now at the university means that they can no longer sit on a name that commemorates someone who so unabashedly had put these policies into motion and changed all of our lives um, and, and still has lasting impacts to this day. I want to talk to you a bit about uh, the reckoning we are or, or aren't having um, as a country right now, before we talk about the specifics of the government and the Catholic Church. But, you know, since um, we learned about the children buried at Kamloops, when the news first broke um, a little more than a week ago, what sort of reaction did you expect from Canadians in general? And, and did the reaction you saw differ from those expectations? You know, I got to say, I don't know that I had expected uh, any different of a reaction. I think that, I think I was really actually surprised that Canadians took it so seriously. Um, like I said, I'm a descendant of survivors of the school and I have known, we've known as Indigenous communities that there are mass burial sites uh, outside of these schools. There's actually an area outside of the school, uh, the grounds near my house where I grew up, that nobody will build on because it's suspected that that's a, uh, that that's a mass grave site. So this is a known, this is known in our community. So when it comes to Looking at the reaction of Canadians, I think it is justified. I think it is, uh, I am, I, I got to say, I, and now reflecting on the question, um, it's good that Canadians are, are reckoning with this because they need to, and it's time. It's long past due, actually. Now, I want to ask you the same question, except for, as I mentioned, uh, the entities that I guess bear the brunt of responsibility for this, which is both the Canadian government and the Catholic Church, who have who have addressed this, um, at least, but, you know, what were you expecting from them versus what, what we got? I don't have high expectations for institutions that are rooted in uh, white supremacy and upholding settler colonial violence. I don't have high expectations at all. And I think that as we are seeing direct action in the work of of uplifting the voices of communities who have been marginalized is actually going to be what's going to bring about change. As um, if I may return to the ex-university uh, and the statue issue, there was a task force mm -hmm. that was put in place to examine the role of commemoration at Ryerson University. And it was a very institutional response. Like, let's just examine this. Let's talk. Let's engage. Let's consult. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we know as Indigenous peoples that engagements and consultations oftentimes just cherry pick what is being said and, and the truth that we are saying. And they, I think, advantageously take the most centrist or most neutral or the most convenient narratives and stick with those. So Canada as a government making, you know, the, in the response that they have done uh, and Justin Trudeau's response, it was very lukewarm. It wasn't very substantial. Uh, and now that we just saw that the Pope uh, offered some thoughts, I guess, thoughts and prayers or something along those lines. Hmm. And it was just, it's not enough. And But it's not surprising. These are institutions that... Uh, 
gather and, and maintain their power um, at the expense of our communities. And so when they're forced to reckon with this violence, it's no surprise that all they can offer is thoughts and prayers, and uh, but just fall short of that real substantive change that needs to happen um, to bring about justice for our communities. I'm going to ask you a question that kind of sounds rhetorical, but I, I don't mean it that way. But, you know, when you mentioned to me just a, a moment or two ago that on you, your land, there is an area that nobody will build on because it's suspected that there is a mass grave there. Is there any other context in which a group of Canadians might suspect that there is a mass burial site and we wouldn't go and dig it up immediately and figure out what happened? Right. I think it's the the burden that Indigenous peoples have had to carry in this country is massive. I went to kindergarten on that site. I grew up on that site. I've, I've known that site and, and the stories, you know, my family stories for my entire life. And that's a burden that I have to carry. Um, and this surprise and shock on the part of Canadians, I, I get it because there's not been any education. There's not been any truth about what has happened. But at the same time, it's like, so now you can finally share this burden with us. Uh, as Justin Trudeau promised back in 2015, we'll share the burden with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but for too long, we still carried it and we still are carrying it. And I think the response now of of wanting to go and, uh, and examine all sites, now that's falling upon First Nations who are already grieving. And the response mm-hmm. on the part of my First Nation um, just to speak to that specific example, because that's the context I'm I'm coming from. We already have so many issues to deal with. We have abject poverty. We have lack of infrastructure. We have boil water advisories. We have, um, you know, youth in poverty and and um, education gaps, health gaps, inequities left and right. And now tasked to, of course, it should be us who's leading these responses and uh, the work of of looking into these sites. But I want Canadians to know that this is in addition to the already significant burden that we are carrying in terms of inequities in this country. Since you mentioned uh, Trudeau and the Liberals' promises, and and since we were also talking about uh, institutions' tendencies to create committees and study things... um, I want to ask you about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee because I believe you co-authored a report last year that tried to quantify just how far we've come on those recommendations. Can you outline the results? I mean, you don't have to go through all 90, uh, 90-something points, but like what have and, and haven't we done since? Uh, and I'm going to say the Liberals made a pretty big deal about what they were doing with this. Yeah, so... Dr. Ian Mosby and myself do an annual report on the calls to action accountability. And we've been, do, uh, Dr. Ian Mosby has been doing this since 2016. And so in 2019, we teamed up to do that. And it's become a yearly check-in on the progress of these calls to action because what we found was the methodology of other sites or other organizations doing this work was very generous. Hmm. And it gave a lot of, um, I guess, leeway to the government in terms of things that are in progress or things projects underway or things promised. And so we wanted to look really 
starkly at what's been done. Mm -hmm. So our methodology is quite critical. And we found that uh, in 2020, uh, as of 2020, only eight of the 94 calls to action have been completed. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, there were no additional calls to action completed, despite uh, you know, the promises on the part of the Liberals to push through uh, action on the, calls, on the calls to action. And of course, we were certainly attentive to the challenges that the global pandemic has caused. Uh, but we argued that had the calls to action been seriously implemented from 2015 when they were originally released, many of those issues that Indigenous peoples are currently facing could have been addressed. So Indigenous peoples were hit particularly hard by the pandemic, and we face so many more barriers, as I had talked about, than Canadians in the crisis. And um, I think that it wasn't an excuse. As we can see, we are still in a pandemic. We are still in lockdown. And look, two calls to action got pushed forward in one week mm -hmm. as a result of the uh, discovery in, uh, in Kamloops. And so... Completion is dismal. It's glacial. And we found that if it continues at the rate that it is, we're not going to see justice for another 50 years. We're not going to see the completion of the calls to action in another 50 years. And I want to remind again, remind folks that the calls to action are the bare minimum right. to get Indigenous peoples to a point of equity uh, and to a point of, of um, you know, accountability. This is the bare minimum for accountability. And the fact that those calls to action couldn't even be addressed in the five years since the, they have been released, not to mention in the last 30 years, over 1,000 recommendations have been released on the part of several different uh, reports, um, commissions, uh, studies, inquiries, all of these things, over 1,000 recommendations from Indigenous peoples, Indigenous intellectual labor, um, has been put forward to Canada and still there's just been no movement on it. So this discovery last week, it really lit a fire under Canada, I think, to, to act. And it almost feels like, you know, the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Right. <laughs> well, it's like the cat is here now. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, hey, you haven't been doing what you've said you're going to do. And now that you have this um, genocide on the on the world stage, um, they're being called to task. So if the liberals then really were to take Kamloops and, and the anger from Canadians that has followed it as, as a wake-up call, um, you know, you mentioned they moved on a couple of things directly in the wake of this. If they were to, to take that and keep that up, what would they do next to really try to finally get a handle on the responsibilities they have here? I think that's a good question because there's no timeline, there's no kind of Gantt chart that takes place in terms of addressing the calls to action. There's no, um, as I understand it, uh, that I've seen, there's not really a recommendation of which ones to take up first. But what I can tell you is that the ones that have been taken up, most of them, save for the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and Two-Spirit Inquiry, um, have most of them have been window dressing. And um, Trudeau and the Liberal government can start by supporting actual justice for Indigenous peoples instead of fighting their legitimate claims in court. So currently the Liberal government, as of, uh, from what I understand it, has spent over $100 million fighting survivors of St. Anne's Residential School 
And still, there is a real threat that those records from that school will be destroyed. There is a continued refusal to heed the calls of the community, the, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, uh, in terms of funding child welfare, funding Jordan's principle, and the, the government is continuing to fight children in court. So those are some very immediate and substantial steps that the Liberal government can, can take to, uh, to gesturing its, its recognition of reconciliation uh, in this country. And beyond that, a lot of Canadians have, some people have asked me, well, there was all these budget line items that were put towards reconciliation. Isn't that enough? When, when is it going to be enough? It's going to be enough when the systems of oppression are lifted, when the systems of oppression uh, no longer exist. And so you can put all the money you want into reconciliation, but the reality is many non-Indigenous organizations are siphoning off those monies um, and putting them into uh, their particular organizations so that they're situated to serve Indigenous communities when that infrastructure needs to exist in Indigenous communities. So it's a, it's a very complex issue. And I know that Canadians are looking for an answer of when is it going to be enough? And I, in fact, I think that's why uh, the government so quickly put in place the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And so this is now a, a statutory holiday that will be honored on September 30th. And a lot of my, you know, I saw a lot of outrage in my community. So their first move was to make it so that they had a holiday for themselves. <laughs> and we're still struggling. So... There's so much, and I'm not um, the sole voice on this, and there's going to be differing voices on this, and there's going to be different contexts on this based on which Indigenous nation you're speaking to, you know, which part of the country we're talking about. And that, for that reason, Canadians are so, you know, they have the privilege of being exhausted by our issues. But the reality is this country has is sitting atop hundreds of Indigenous nations, and we all have our own perspectives, our own needs, and our own, uh, you know, nationhoods that Canada has to has to deal with. Do you believe, given, uh, you know, what you've seen from, from Canadians, uh, ordinary Canadians that might previously have not fully engaged on this uh, over the past week, and what you've heard from institutions like Ryerson or, uh, you know, governments or anything else, really, do you believe this time can be different and that Canada's actually going to to own up to its past here? Because I, I wonder, because I, I imagine it must be so easy for you to be cynical on this point. Yeah, I think that I have very cautious hope based on the students that I have, based on the individuals that I meet in community, co-conspirators and allies who are willing to stand in solidarity with us. And I think that Canadians can take that that stance to be in solidarity with uh, with Indigenous peoples and call for their government and their country to change its genocidal policies. This is an ongoing genocide. This is it's not just in the past, but it's the legacies and the impacts are ongoing, and Canadians need to understand that. So I have a cautious hope that this will be a flashpoint. For Canadians, even though there's been so many flashpoints in the past, there's been so many in the past. But I guess, as speaking from someone who's of this moment and this generation, um, all I can say is, perhaps maybe all we have is cautious hope as Indigenous peoples that Canadians will wake up. 
if the country does continue to wake up and we actually finally take the the deep approach to to real truth and reconciliation after this, no matter how ugly some of the stuff is, how painful and illuminating will the next year be as we really figure out what went on here? It's going to hurt. There's thousands of thousands of individuals in those in those mass graves, babies and children. Um, there are thousands of survivors today still that have and carry the stories of death and trauma and abuse. And there are hundreds of thousands of their descendants who survived the fallout of after the aftermath of residential schools. Because it wasn't just you close a residential school and now everybody go home and be happy in your community. No, that trauma seeped into our communities in very real, tangible ways that are still playing themselves out. Mm. So it, this isn't just a media cycle. This is the reality. This is going to, this should change curriculum. This should change names of universities. This should bring down statues. This should change the way that Canadians feel when they're sitting there on July 1st on their Canada Day, uh, reflecting upon uh, the the great country that they love so much. Um so I think it, it should do, um, it should bring about justice. For Canadians and listeners of this podcast who want those things to happen, who want um, to learn the truth, however ugly it might be, what can they do to help that happen over the next year? I think I'd like to take a point from, I think, what I see Canadians often talking about is take it to the ballot boxes, I guess. I I. I you know, have a very complicated relationship with voting myself. But if that's your institution of power as Canadians, then take it to your to your ballot boxes, take it to your representatives, push your representatives to acknowledge and to um, engage policy that will bring about substantial change. Outside of that, I think that Canadians can speak to their children about this. They can form and forge a new identity, one that's not based on the erasure of Indigenous peoples, but one that is you know, based in contrition. And contrition is the apologetic um, space of action. And so uh, it's, it's different from guilt. It's, it's, it means action too, right? So there's, um, there's plenty of things that Indigenous peoples are saying, things like land back. We just produced a report called Cashback that looks at the massive amount of stolen wealth that's come out of Canadian, you know, quote unquote, Canadian lands and resources. These are all indigenous lands and resources that have been stolen from us. So there's a lot of reckoning, I, I got to say. So I think that inform yourselves as Canadians. Um, there are plenty of resources. And I think to those who do know and who do have relationships with with indigenous communities and those co-conspirators, um, bring along your your relatives on this. Bring, you know, <laughs> Bring along your loved ones, your relatives, your friends, uh, and and your neighbors on this because um, I want to say that one thing that really bothers me is the benevolent Canadian stereotype. And Canadians really play into that. Explain that. They love this stereotype of we're so polite. We say sorry all the time. Sorry, sorry. You know, so just so polite. And I'm like... I, I see as an Indigenous person um, a lot of racism, a lot of hate, a lot of enjoyment of the benefits and privileges of our lands and territories that were stolen from us and no regard for that. And so check your benevolent Canadian stereotype, I would say. That is a great point to end on. 
Uh, Eva, thank you so much for sharing your time and, and your knowledge with us today. Jimmy Gwitch for having me, Jordan. That was Eva Jewell of the Yellowhead Institute at what's known at least for now as X University. That was The Big Story. You can find more big stories at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter, as always, at the Big Story FPN. You can find us via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.